verse 6. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Jackie. Good morning, friends. It's a real privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And it will also be really beneficial if you can have that passage in the Bible opened up um, as, as I share God's word uh, this morning. Let me pray before we start. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is powerful. And as we come to this chapter of 1 Corinthians... Lord, bring up all that we have heard from you over the past few weeks. Help us to understand your word. And we pray, Lord, that you will illuminate Christ in this text. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You know, over the years, uh, our children have been invited to a few birthday parties at a place called Inflatable World. As you can see up there, essentially a jumping castle. I think of 10, 20 jumping castles all intertwined, connected together in a commercial warehouse. Activities, sections where kids can jump, play, hide, obstacle courses, games, all filled up in this industrial-sized warehouse. And the last time we were at Inflatable World, uh, after two hours of intense play, um, we were at the end session of the day. Uh, I saw a staff member simply flick off a switch and uh, within seconds, inflatable world became deflatable world. Plastic sheets on the ground in an empty warehouse, graffiti around the warehouse, uh, rubbish around the warehouse in just one flick of a switch. 
And over the past few weeks in our study of 1 Corinthians, we've seen the Apostle Paul deal with the Corinthian church's inflated view of their leaders and of themselves. In many ways, the Corinthian church had their own inflatable world, uh, where they took pride in the eloquence of their leaders' speech, a world where inflated views of certain leaders caused divisions and quarrels among themselves. But in our passage today, Paul deflates the Corinthian boast in their leaders and themselves. Like flicking off the switch of the air pumps, he shows them the reality of life, the reality of a life of suffering and shame that they are called to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an important message for us to hear because we live in a culture where we are always encouraged to inflate ourselves, to boast and what's really disturbing is that churches now more than ever have endless opportunities to inflate and boast and place much value on their image rather than on substance and reality. You just need to look at church websites, church conference agendas, endorsements in the sleeves of Christian books, biographies of some prominent Christian leaders and speakers. And as we live in such comfort and safety and prosperity, we need to be woken up from our delusions and face the reality that the church is called to live and suffer in a world that does not see the glory of a crucified Christ. So the process of deflating and coming back to reality begins in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4. And here we'll see Paul telling the Corinthians that there's no grounds for them to be boasting about one leader over another leader. Because the leaders of the church, as we heard last week in the sermon, they are simply servants. Servants. And he uses himself and Apollos as examples of leaders who are servants, sharing God's word. Look with me at verse 6. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then... You will not take pride in one man over against another. What are these things, these things that Paul is applying to himself and Apollos? Well, they are the things that he just mentioned in the previous verses about how leaders, how they should be regarded as servants of Christ. And as servants of Christ, they seek to know nothing and preach nothing except Christ crucified. This really means that they will not go beyond what is written. In other words, Paul and the leaders of the church as servants of Christ operate within that boundary of what is written in the scriptures. They preach the same message, the message of the cross. They preach from the same spirit of God. They preach about the same gifts, the same calling, the same purposes. They preach in the power, the same power of God, not the wisdom of man. So from the Apostle Paul, to the teachers in the church today. They are simply servants of Christ, operating within the bounds of what is written. And this should deflate any inflated views that we might have in our hearts and in our minds about teachers and leaders. Because if the path to knowing about God was through cleverness, charisma, then the clever and charismatic leaders should be the ones that we lift up. The clever and the charismatic leader is the one whom we should have as the pastor of this church. 
But if leaders and teachers are just servants of Christ, serving us only what is written in God's word, then we must be very careful not to think too much of our favourite preacher or great Bible teacher or great Christian speaker. It's not to say, not to say that people can't be gifted as teachers and leaders, but we must recognise that the way of the world is to boast, inflate ourselves, inflate each other, and take our focus away from what is written to who is delivering it. That will always be the temptation. Making sure that teachers don't go beyond what is written is a way to keep them accountable. Um, and that's why in this church, most of the preachers would say before they start talking, keep your Bibles open. Keep your Bibles open so that you can hold me and other teachers accountable. But the warning to not go beyond what is written is not just for leaders and teachers in the church. It's also for all believers. And as the Corinthians had inflated views of certain leaders over another, it reflects an inflated view of themselves, which went dangerously beyond what is written. So we look in verse 7, and Paul asks the Corinthians three sharp questions to bring them back to reality. Verse 7, the first question he asks, For who makes you different from anyone else? In other words, who made you and separated you and made you better and superior than other Christians? Now this question targets that arrogance and pride of the Corinthians who think that they have some special superiority or difference to other Christians because of some special blessing, some special teaching, some special experience or ability or affiliation and gifting. The answer to the question is that you're no different to any other Christians because you're just the recipients of the same grace in the Lord Jesus. The next question. Paul addresses these supposed gifts and abilities, and he asks this, What do you have that you did not receive? Paul's saying, okay, let's think about these special gifts and abilities that you have. Is there anything in your life that isn't from God? Have you somehow turned from being the receiver of everything to now the creator of things? Now, whatever gifts or abilities that they have are ultimately and always gifts from God. It's absurd. It's absurd for someone to take credit for producing something that was actually just a gift. And so follows the third and final question. And he says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And that's the heart of the issue. The Corinthians saw the gifts of God as a grounds for boasting. They had this inflated view that they were really successful, lively, mature, effective as a church. They've bought into the delusion, the illusion that they could be the best, the best they could be. But Paul, when he sees how deeply deluded the Corinthian church is with their boasting, he gives the final blow with a really cutting sarcasm in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And that without us. I wish that you had really become kings so we might be kings with you. You know, they have all they want. They're filled. It's the image of somebody at that buffet. Some of you have been there. Filled up with all the food that you desire. And you can't have any more. You know, I've heard of people at buffets, wink, me, at a time. 
where we were in the car and we said, I can't speak. <laughs> Shameful. They're rich. They're rich. So much abundance. You know when you're rich, like not just a little bit rich, but truly rich, you actually lack nothing. You can buy whatever you want. You're rich. And they've become kings. You know that, that position of a king. What's on top of a king? They've raised to be at such a high position, there's nowhere else to go. There's no other place to ascend. And Paul is sarcastically saying, you've made it. You've made it, Corinthians. And you've made it already. Today. Right now in this age. And somehow you've made it without us. And that's the disconnect. As a church, the Corinthians thinks they've made it to victory, abundance and triumphs. But these apostles, leaders of the church, they're not even there. Paul isn't saying that being filled or reigning in victory is a bad thing. He's not saying that. In fact, it's something that he's looking forward to. He wishes that the Corinthians really were there. Because that would mean he, you and I, we would all be there sharing it together. But it's not the reality right now. Now in verses 9 to 13, Paul shows them the reality of the Christian life. And as a leader and follower of Jesus, this is what he and the apostles are going through. Look at verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well to men. Now, this is the reality of their status in the world like men condemned to die, humiliated by the whole world. It's the image of that Roman military parade, victory, where they parade all the spoils of war. And right at the end of that procession, you have prisoners of war. You have right there the apostles condemned to die, to be slaughtered by the wild beast and the gladiator in the arena for all people to watch. Very far cry for being rich, full and kingly like how the Corinthians saw themselves. You know, in the, in the Corinthian mind, they were sitting in A-class box seats in the arena, watching the show, being fed wine and grapes and foods, not being humiliated, condemned to death, or dying in front of a crowd. But for the apostles, having that status of condemned includes the experience, obviously, of suffering. You know, in verses 10 to 12, they're described as fools, weak, Dishonored, hungry, thirsty, in rags, brutally treated, homeless, working hard with their own hands, which is just another way of saying that they were the lowest in society. In the Greek mind, manual labor is the lowest of the lowest. The apostles at the bottom of the social ladder. You know, if you've ever spent time with uh, those in society who are deemed as fools, weak, dishonored, hungry, thirsty, in rags, brutally treated or homeless, you realize that these people react to their situation in a whole range of ways. Um, you know, when I was being trained to work in, uh, in this sort of area, um, I was always told to never expect um, a particular reaction, never assume how someone would react to their suffering. Because anything had happened, people dis uh, respond really differently to their suffering. Some people lash out in anger, some people blame others, some people wallow in despair, some people shut down and close up. But look at how the apostles respond 
to their lowly status. Verse 12 and 3. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. This is an out-of-this-world response to suffering. Countercultural. And there's an underlying power behind these responses, and it's the power of grace. They respond with grace. In other words, treating others the way they don't deserve to be treated. And to summarize the situation and the reality of the apostles' lives, Paul ends with that following summary. And, and look at verse 13. He says, Up to this moment we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. What he's saying is that from the beginning of time to the very moment that he's putting the pen to the paper, writing this letter, they have become the scum of the earth. You know, the idea of being scum of the earth is saying that the apostles were worthless, filthy scrapings of a burnt pan, of no value to the earth and of no use to the earth. Only good to be scraped away like rubbish you don't want to see or have around. And indeed rubbish, refuse, is what they are described as, refuse of the world. Just think of the idea of rubbish, refuse. You know the rubbish bin in that bin in that kitchen uh, is the rubbish of the people of St. Thomas's, uh, not the people next door. Uh, you know the rubbish out at the tip past Penrith is the rubbish of the people of the Inner West Council. It's not the rubbish of the people of Queensland. But look how Paul addresses himself in Apollos. They are rubbish of the world. They're not rejections of a single place or rejections of multiple places, but rejections from the world. The apostles, their ministry, their service, the message that they proclaim, that we have been proclaiming in our service since 9.30, the message I'm proclaiming here now, has no place in the world. Rejected by the world as filthy trash. And it's realized that God's wisdom to the world looks like rubbish. The Christian life, the Christian message, the gospel. Um, we just need to remember a few weeks ago as we looked at chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the contrast is, is as extreme as it gets from the Corinthians' inflated view of their Christian experience as full, rich, kingly, wise to the rea reality of Paul and the apostles as the scum of the earth, the refuge of the world to this very day. But there has to be more behind why the apostles are suffering, rejected, and responding in grace. Otherwise, this is just an example of a sorry pain and suffering for no reason at all. Yes, there's, there's more to it. Because the experiences of the apostles isn't unique to them. They are simply following in the footsteps of their master and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was beaten, rejected, nailed to a cross by those who thought they were being wise in the eyes of the world. Jesus, although being in very nature God, was condemned to die, rejected, suffered. When he was cursed, he blessed. When persecuted, he endured it. When slandered, he answered with grace. We hear the echoes of Jesus in the experience of the apostles. But this morning, as we sit here in the comfort and security of this building, we'll be tempted to think that the life of suffering is just for the apostles, or even just for Jesus. No. 
this way of life is the calling for the Corinthian church and for all Christians till this day. Let's look at verse 14 to 17. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I am sending you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul here is telling the Corinthians that he, he didn't burst their inflated views of themselves or be sarcastic in order to shame them or to be nasty, but to warn them, to warn them as their father in the gospel. He describes this way himself this way because although the Corinthians might have lots of brothers and teachers in the church, Paul has a really special love and concern for them because he was the first one to bring the gospel to them. So he's pleading from the depths of his heart like a father to a child, urging them to imitate him. You know, it's very rare to hear someone say, imitate me. I don't know if you've heard that. I really rarely hear that. Uh, most of the time we hear people say what? Do as I say, not as I do. You know, so before we tell Paul to just get off his high horse, imitate me, we need to see that the call to imitate him is a call to imitate the way of life in Christ Jesus. You see the chain of imitation? Paul says, I'm sending you Timothy, who will live in a way that will remind you of my life, and my life is the way of life in Christ Jesus. So follow Timothy, who imitates me, who actually imitates Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to imitate life in Christ Jesus? Well, it's the call to live in this world in the light of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who was despised, rejected, and died on the cross. In other words, it's a call to live in the way of the cross. The way of the cross. What does it mean to live in the way of the cross? Yep, we've seen the example of Paul and the apostles, but we need more than an example. We need an explanation on how and why we should live in the way of the cross. I'll put on the screen right now the words of Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Hear these words from Jesus himself. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is saying that those who want to follow him must firstly deny themselves. Deny themselves. What Jesus calls for here is to abandon your own identity and self-determination. Denying yourself is a completely different level to denying yourself chocolates because of Lent. Uh, it's not denial of something to yourself, but the denial of the self itself. It's recognizing that you're not the boss of your life. You're not the author of your reality. You're not the center of your world. Your loved ones are not the center of the world. I am not the king or the queen of my life. And if you think about it, denying yourself really is about 
deflating, coming back to reality from your inflated view of yourself your, um, and others in the world. So after denying yourself, you take up your cross and follow Jesus. Let's think about the cross. The cross, it's a form of execution. Famously painful execution. A famously shameful execution. The cross always leads to death. So taking up your cross means to die to the world and all that it stands for and follow Jesus. Taking up your cross and following Jesus means that Jesus has become more precious to you than the world's approval, honor, comfort and life. So your old self that loves human approval, honor, comfort and this life more than it loves Jesus, but your new self denies and says to that old self, you're not in charge anymore. I love Jesus more than human approval, honor, comfort and life. So much so that I'm ready to endure opposition, shame, suffering and even death as I live out of step with this world, but in step with the world to come. But why? Why would we do this? Why would we take up our cross? Well, listen to Mark chapter 8, verse 35 to 36. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And you see, there's an eternity to gain in following Jesus. Jesus is telling us that even with suffering now in this life, it's still infinitely worth it compared to walking away from him and losing everything in eternity. You know, one just needs to realize how inflated our view of time is, how inflated we can ha- a view we can have of the mere 90-ish, if we're blessed, years that we have on this earth compared to eternity. Eternity is at stake. But did you notice how Jesus points out one of our biggest temptations? It's gaining the whole world. Jesus calls us to stop living in pursuit of this world and live for the kingdom to come. Wasn't this a struggle for the Corinthian church? Living like the world, loving the standards of the world so much that they treated each other in the church in the same way. Isn't it our struggle? Loving self, loving the world and its comforts more than the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not a hopeless struggle because there's hope. Because as we conclude our study in the first four chapters of Corinthians, I want to highlight the warnings and hope that we can have in Jesus. Firstly, there's a message um, to the truly worldly person, the non-Christian. If you are living, if all that you're living for is this world, its riches, its status, its comfort, if this world is your home, you need to be warned that the world will be turned upside down. There'll be a time when Jesus will return and wipe away all the things and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Those who put their hope in those things will be shown to be fools. But there's good news. Jesus offers eternal life through his death and resurrection. So why won't you surrender your life to him? He calls you to wake up and see the delusion that this world is not all that there is. 
Come deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. And finally, there's a message to all Christians. All Christians. As we've seen in our passage today and in all the previous chapters of 1 Corinthians, there's no place for boasting, quarreling in the church, because we are all one in Christ Jesus with a common calling and a common gift of grace. Our only boast is the boast in the Lord. So we need to stop deluding ourselves with the divisions that actually don't exist. That person beside you is your brother or sister in Christ. You have the same spirit dwelling within you. And this morning we need to take the warning about having an inflated view of ourselves. Can we be in danger of boasting like the Corinthians who felt that they were already rich, full and kingly, coming across like we've made it while living here on the earth? You know, see, there are churches out there who are more charismatic and might go beyond what is written and they have a tendency to try to create an atmosphere of joy and abundance and royal living as God's people on earth, similar to what we read about in the Corinthians. I've heard of some churches that Instead of calling people, as we said before, Auntie Leslie, and that they don't call them, they call them Queen Leslie, Queen King Sam, Prince Sam, calling each other princes because we're we're part of a kingly rule, and they encourage people to live in worldly abundance. I don't think that is the issue here in a Sydney evangelical Anglican church. I think our issue is that our fullness, our richness, our kingliness comes out in more subtle ways. It doesn't come out in overt shows of boasting, but rather quiet shows of complacency. Now, our danger is if we're feeling generally okay, can't see any more room for Christian growth in our life. Coming to church is just something that you do as part of your routine. Maybe we're thinking we've reached our peak because we've done all the missions, the outreaches, the events, the ministries, we've done it all. We've done all four strands. The four strands of KYLC only got through two. Is it four? Four, thank you. We've done all the strands. We've done our time. There's nothing to long for. Well, that sort of attitude's no different to the Corinthians. You're full. You're rich. You're reigning like kings. But we need to take the warning of Paul and take up our cross and follow Jesus and come back to the reality that we are citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth. We are called, all of us, to live in the way of the cross, to embrace suffering that comes our way as we live out of step to this world but in step with the world to come, to endure suffering as we keep our eyes on Jesus and await his return and for the new heaven and new earth as we follow our crucified yet glorious Saviour, Christ. We pray with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has a power to change the hardest of hearts. Lord, continue to deflate the inflated views we have of ourselves. For apart from your grace, how could we be different from anyone else? Well, who sees any difference in us? We have all been freely justified by your grace, forgiven our sins. Rid us of complacency. Give us a longing for your kingdom to look forward to the riches and glory of heaven 
but not to be deluded while we're here on earth. Through your grace in Jesus, we have received all things. Grow in our hearts a deep desire and love for your kingdom. Let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, to bear the cross is to wear the crown. Let us find your light in our darkness, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, and your life in our death. Keep our eyes on Jesus as we live through this life, denying ourselves, taking up the cross. And as we follow you now and into eternity, in Jesus' name, amen.